Hello and welcome to the Spectator PM podcast. I am Luther, joined by Aubrey. How are you today, Aubrey? I am doing well. Excited that it's almost the weekend. So, yeah, and I hear that you're taking to, to violence. You joined the YMCA men's club last week, and now you're into Taekwondo. What, what what's up with that? <laughs> Um, well, I started Taekwondo in college actually because I was in journalism. I had no clue about self-defense. And so I was like, oh, I should learn self-defense. Uh, it turns out Taekwondo is a bit more of an involved sport than um, just self-defense. So um, yeah, but it's been a lot of fun. I've been, I found a spot in, uh, in Columbus, which has been really good because it's like a small, like Christian group. Um, and they are into technique, but they are not trying to kill you, which is a nice balance <laughs> of like, you don't need to know 51 steps, but you should know 25, <laughs> but you don't, it, you're not going to get away with none. There's always that one guy, and maybe you don't have that one guy, and I'm happy for you if this is the case, but that one guy who just takes it too far, who's oh, a little too multiple. serious about it. <laughs> yeah. Multiples of those. They just don't, they aren't in charge. So. Okay. That's good. Yeah, that's when it becomes Fight Club and yeah, people second. start leaving on stretchers. Yep, yep. So, <laughs> well, I've um, I've been taking advantage of this uh, Indian summer in Wisconsin, and we consider Indian summer. We still celebrate it, whether it's politically correct or not. But it's when it's slightly warmer than you expect it to be. And so yesterday it was like 47 degrees and sunny. So I was outside with my um, my pitching net, throwing the ball back and forth. And I realized that my throwing is so slow at this point because I'm an aged, decrepit old man that um, I didn't even need my baseball net, net to catch the ball on its return because it was just these soft little <laughs> pop flies. <laughs> so I just did uh, old school baseball move uh, with, with bare hands that was a lot of fun, especially when you're thinking on something for a story to get into that sort of um, Zen place while doing a physical activity. It's pretty great. Yeah, uh, a good connection between like the physical and the mental and like they, they tend to mesh better <laughs> when you do one, you get the other. Oh, definitely. And that's why uh, Dickens, he would walk for 15, 20 miles a day. Yeah. He's a professional ambulator, I think <laughs> is how John Podhortz references him. Uh, but he was an observer of people. And of course, in his 15 to 20 miles of walking, he could see every stripe, every creed during that time. Uh, some would say he walked too long and wrote too much, but uh, that's, that's a discussion for later in the podcast when we talk about big books. Uh, so Aubrey, Ohio and Virginia and a couple other, uh, elections and, uh, votes took place in the past week. Could you catch us up on what's happening there? What happened? Yeah. So, um, not good news as far as Ohio goes, um, or actually Virginia, really, um, election night turned out to be kind of a wash. Um, Ohio voted to add a constitutional amendment uh, to the state constitution that says that um, when ind any individual actually has a right to reproductive health care, including but not limited to abortion. So it's 
pretty much one of the most radical amendments that could have been added to the Constitution. It doesn't just apply to women, which you could argue is anybody over the age of 18 or 21 or whatever. Um, so it could apply to minors, potentially, um, but we'll have to see how that'll play out in courts. Um, and it could apply to um, gender, you know, gender changing surgeries rather than just abortions, because um, that's also technically reproductive health care, I guess now, health care in quotes. Um, and yeah, so it's a lot of, um, it, it was very bad news in Ohio. They also voted in to include marijuana. And yeah, Aubrey, just to go back real quick, why do you think it is that the pro-life side is losing so consistently on these ballot measures, where I think uh, we're 0 and 7 at this point on, on ballot measures. Why is it when it comes to direct democracy on the question that we aren't seeing any wins? I think there's a really key thing that a lot of pro-lifers don't want to admit, um, and it's that we haven't convinced enough people that abortion is actually wrong. Um, as a general, I mean, as like as a general rule, like for 50 years, Roe v. Wade told women that they have the right to choose whether or not they continue a pregnancy, whether or not they have the life, they let the life within them, you know, come to fruition. And that, um, when you're told that for 50 years, eventually you start to believe it. And we're one year after Dobbs. And I mean, we're not going to undo the effect of Roe v. Wade in one year. Um, it's just not going to happen. But at the same time, it's I think losses like what happened in Ohio are a reminder that actually what needs to be happening is on the ground, we need to be talking to people and at least convincing them like, I, I don't know if we're at this point, we're not going to be at a stage if we're going to be honest, unfortunately, where we're like, oh, we should ban abortion entirely. That's There's just not enough support for that. But if we can convince people first like 15 weeks and then six weeks and then like gradually move it back, I think that argument's gonna get a lot easier to make. We really just have to change people's minds and hearts and it's going to take people on the ground, people in women's pregnancy centers. I mean, there are a lot of people doing great work there. Um, and Dobbs has given them the ability to do that work better, I think, but I don't think we're at a point where we've to we're not going to reverse Roe v. Wade in 50 years. The effect it's had on the society and on the culture, and um, so in some ways, like losing uh, in Ohio was a big deal. It was very you know it's really hard, especially as a pro-lifer. I know a lot of people who were going door to door every weekend. They were doing phonathons several nights a week. They would just they would get pizza and they would call you know several hundred people on a phone for four hours and. It's really hard for those people to lose an issue like this after talking to so many people. Um, can the can the measure be reversed by the same uh, means? Could there be a constitutional amendment in the future that wins fifty one forty nine that protects unborn life uh, at a fifteen week mark, a six week mark, what have you? I mean, absolutely, there could be. And actually, some people in Ohio, some legislators in Ohio, especially Republicans in the State House, are already talking about introducing something like that for 2024. So 
They have about six weeks to get it on the ballot. I, if I, my pessimistic side of me is like, we're not going to win it in 2024, probably not in 2025, maybe in 2030, if we're lucky, if, you know. Yeah, I think right now we're still on whatever you want to call it, this wave of reaction to the Dobbs mm -hmm. decision. And I would say that on messaging, the pro-abortion side uh, is winning that debate because people haven't had to think about the abortion issue in so long, uh, most Americans, where it's always just been at the Supreme Court level, and it is what it is. And it's not a subject that people want to think about uh, and have to consider because there are, there are some really difficult moral questions there that are, I, I would argue, unique uh, to abortion. And yeah, I, I sympathize with those who are doing all this great work in arguing uh, the pro-life side, uh, but seemingly overwhelmed by this reaction to the Dobbs decision that has upended um, American politics. Uh, although it, we can the debate market. how how large of a wave that is. Yeah, and, and the marketing thing has been a huge deal. I mean, like in Ohio alone, we know that the pro-abortion uh, vote yes on issue one side raised twice as much money as the pro-life side. I mean, in, we're talking like an extra, at least twice as much, it's probably more than that. Um, I think it's like an extra like $20 million, if I'm remembering the figures correctly. Um, it was kind of insane. And I mean, they were funded by people like the ACLU and George Soros and um, certain California Democratic um, organizations. And all of that really added up when it came to ads and what they were able to pay for. So for instance, for weeks ahead of the vote, my YouTube channel, because I have, you know, in Ohio, um, I live in Ohio. So it's just like bombarded with these ads that are, I mean, pretty much basically lies. It's like, you're not going to have access to contraception. Well, technically nothing was going to change about the status quo if issue one failed. So. Yeah, I don't understand why out-of-state actors, donors can run this sort of stuff in a state question. Like the federalism, the idea is that each state, each community, what have you, each polity can decide for itself. But when you have a local school board election that has some uh, multi-billionaire uh, Californian wanting things to go one way or the other because he has a political interest in making American education even more progressive, uh, that strikes me as wrong. And I know that's a speech issue. Like, well, he can say what he wants, where he wants. But the localist in me says, yeah, butt out. Like, <laughs> please go away. Actually, don't please just go away. Uh, <laughs> this isn't your debate and you shouldn't have a voice here because it doesn't affect you, guy from out of state. Not only does it not affect you, but your money is affecting other people who do live here in you know a huge way like the pro-life side simply doesn't have the resources that somebody like you know the aclu or george soros has and 
I'm a lot of not there was out of state funding for the pro life side. A lot, the Susan B. Anthony Society um, definitely donated quite a bit of money, but there's also a most of a lot of it was in state funding versus the other side was a ton of it is out of state funding and yeah, yeah it. And the same thing happened in issue one in August when people voted whether or not to um, change the Constitution on how the percentage of votes to get an amendment to the Constitution passed was whether or not you should do a simple majority or a super majority. And uh, yeah, there's millions of dollars of out of state funding there too. And yeah, it's definitely a problem. And I don't think enough people talk about it. So yeah. Yeah, that really chafes my chaps. Um... So then we had the GOP debate, and you said you weren't able to tune in, but you caught a little bit of coverage. Uh, what did you see as an observer who didn't tune in? What was making the rounds? What were most Americans seeing when they woke up on, was that Thursday or Friday morning? Thursday morning. Wednesday, yeah, because it was a Wednesday debate. Honestly, I didn't see a ton about it, which isn't super surprising. I think I wrote, I actually did write about this in my newsletter on Tuesday. Um, the problem with the GOP debates at this point is that nobody believes that any of those candidates are actually going to win the Republican nomination. And so they're really kind of non-events. The other thing is like, there's so many other important things going on in the world right now. I mean, like Israel, the war in Israel, the war in Ukraine is more important. The fact that the government might shut down on November 17th is rather important. Like all of these issues outweigh what's going on in the GOP debate stage. Um, but what, from what I saw, it looked a little more civil. It looked like people were much more willing to attack Trump, which they kind of needed to be. Um, and it looks, honestly, there weren't quite as many of like moderator fails. So apparently the moderator was a bit better. Um, yeah, it was Lester Holt, uh, another NBC anchor, I forget her name, and Hugh Hewitt, who a lot of credit to Hugh Hewitt. He came prepared. And I just want to give a shout out to conservative journalists, when you actually put some conservatives next to some liberal journalists, we tend to hold our own and look a heck of a lot more objective. Uh, and the NBC crew did not do poorly, but Hugh Hewitt did his homework, came prepared and really grilled uh, each of the candidates. And that was good to see. And I wish we saw more of that for the public to view where it isn't on a, you know, a explicitly conservative platform that we're asking these questions, but we're asking them in front of the American people uh, because conservatives sounded correct. Uh, and that's something I credit each of the anchors for is uh, moderators for, for asking questions that really matter. So we're talking foreign policy, we're talking debt, we're talking, what are you doing about the size of the federal government in a, in a real sense, not a, we're going to get rid of every department and we're going to, you know, kick out every bureaucrat and we're just going to have them live in a tent city outside of Washington, D.C. And, you know, we're going to buy Iceland, although we should. Uh, so what was so, something that you saw at the debate? Uh, like, what were your big takeaways? Because you actually did watch the whole thing. Yeah, so I was uh, blogging about it throughout. And what I caught was that Haley and DeSantis are the real deal. Like they, they would do well against Biden. They would be as vigorous and as informed as one could hope for of a presidential nominee. Uh, 
I forgot Chris Christie was still in there. I was like, oh, you're still here. Why? Please go away. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, Vivek was there. And I, I really think between the first debate and the third debate, so much has happened overseas where we need serious leadership that his sophomoric brand of right-wing mantras just doesn't land as well. Because I, I was entertained by him in the first debate, but by the third debate, when there were real questions being asked, it was like, yeah, this guy's a schlub. He's gonna be, he's gonna have a TV show somewhere and good for him. I'll never watch it, but good for him. You know, he's gonna make his money and be part of some corner of the right wing for a long time. Uh, so we definitely saw a separation between the real candidates and everybody else. Tim Scott was there. He did better than he's done before, but there was nothing, nothing beyond, beyond his existence and sounding a little more confident in parts. Uh, so I hope he does withdraw in the, in the coming days. I, he doesn't have a spot in Iowa, New Hampshire, or South Carolina. Uh, so I think if he were to back out and throw his support behind Haley, probably his fellow South Carolinian, that might go quite a ways in um, securing her position as the DeSantis alternative in the Trump alternatives. <laughs> yeah, once you got to the end of the deb debate, you're still like, oh, Trump's out there and he's at 50%. So I, I, I might be looking back at this debate in a year and saying, we could have had something really good as we're considering the, um, <laughs> the results of a Trump-Biden election and whatever the uh, outcome of that would be and the chaos that ensues. Because if it is a Trump or Biden election, you know things are gonna go hairy, sideways and ridiculous and quite possibly violent. I and I hate to assume that to be the case, but for the health of the American Republic, we can't have that from where I'm sitting, uh, but I think it's what we'll get and maybe we deserve that. So on that cheery mark, uh, we're gonna go ahead to, what would you say people should keep an eye out for on the site? What should people be re reading? So I think um, back on the election topic, we're still dealing with, I think the, the analysis of what happened in the election is still coming out. And uh, one of really good piece that went up on our site about that was Mary Frances Myler's Week Comes to the Buckeye State. A lot of people are talking about the abortion issue. I mean, I did. Um, it is the most important issue, but um, we also legalized weed, and that's a big thing. Um, being next to Michigan, actually living in Michigan for four years, you kind of get a feeling for what that's going to look like, and it's not good news. So um, I think it was a really good, a really good analysis of the direction that Ohio could be going in with that, um, and a good warning for us. Um, yeah. So what was something that you saw that stuck out to you? Yeah. On the weed issue, I just point out a couple things. There's serious concern about Chinese nationals coming into the country and starting black market grows. Uh, 
that also include uh, fentanyl and other laced pieces. And I thought this was kind of a conspiracy thing, but no, we're, we're busting operations in Maine and other states where there's just something about weed that lends itself to further Chinese infiltration of our country, as well as uh, drug dependency. And these are strains of weed. It, it is not ditch weed from the 70s or 80s, which you know has fairly low numbers. This stuff is potent junk. Uh, and not only that, but it is ubiquitous, even here in Wisconsin, where it's technically illegal. And this stuff stinks. Like I, I smoke a pipe three times a year and I like my tobacco. Uh, it, it puts me in touch with uh, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis and all those other great thinkers and writers. Uh, and so I'm not against smoking stuff per se, but this crusade against tobacco at the same time we're pushing something that's even more pungent and vaguely socialist, I don't know. <laughs> I consider weed the socialist smoke because it just um, rewards indolence and consumption of things they pretend they don't like. Uh, so for all these reasons, I'm against it. But there are all sorts of weed guys who say, oh, you just don't know what you're talking about. We've got the greatest stuff ever. Maybe. Good for you. Don't care. Um, my... <laughs> My favorite piece this week is, uh, so it is Veterans Day, and it's also the Marine Corps' birthday. So for those of you who are of the Corps, enjoy your Crayolas today. Enjoy talking about old Chesty Puller and all that. Uh, but Jenna Stocker's May the VFW Post Never Die is just lovely. She goes out and visits a VFW and talks about the men there. Uh, the veterans who are more than willing to host you at a VFW or Legion post near you, they are open to the public. Please go in, talk to the guys. They're looking for friendly ears. And I think what Stocker really gets at here is that there are these unseen heroes in our midst who are often dying slow chemical deaths, whether it's alcohol, antidepressants, medications, what have you, where the most important thing is to be recognized and appreciated. Uh, and we talk about deaths of despair and the veteran suicide rate is obscene, uh, unforgivable, really, uh, for, for so many of these men and women who are dealing with things that can't be easy, easily uh, quantified. So, for all those reasons and more, please check out Jenna Stocker's May the VFW Post Never Die. Now let's talk about books. I asked you for the biggest book on your shelf that you've read and uh, whether it's worth reading. What is that book, Aubrey? So um, it must have been in high school, I think. I read Robert Q. Benson's By What Authority. He's way more popular for his Lord of the World, which is like this odd like sci-fi end of the world apocalyptic novel. I didn't particularly care for it. I think there's better treatments of that. Um, and it's, it's that book, it's short, but his By What Authority is fantastic. Um, he's writing about 
the, persecu the persecution of Catholics during Elizabeth I's reign. Um, and the question- Is that a Protestant thing? <laughs> I mean, what do you mean Protestant thing? By what authority is a, it's a good book. It talks a lot about the authority of the Pope, um, but in a more storybook format. So it's definitely a Catholic novel. Sorry, <laughs> really is. That's, so you do recommend it? I do recommend I it, absolutely. I think everybody should read it, Catholic or Protestant. Yeah. The arguments, you don't have to believe them, but you know, consider. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I agree. Uh, I was just reading a piece by Nina Shea, who's been in the government as a sort of um, Catholic advisor. And she has this piece about the Catholic Church's acquiescence regarding communist China and how it's trying to take the long view with China and playing by China's rules to some extent while still allowing the Catholic faith to be taught, even if it isn't exactly how Rome would prefer. Uh, and so that's one to look out for in the future. But it it's difficult as a Protestant because we are rather atomized, where we have house churches in China and that Rome is trying to go through official channels and protect its churches there, both the official ones and the house churches, uh, but that the current Pope is a little more friendly to the official channels and playing by G's rules than I think uh, some Catholics would prefer. Is that a fair assessment, uh, Aubrey? Definitely a fair assessment. There's a very interesting history of the Catholic Church in China. Um, Cardinal Zen actually has a ton of good stuff on it. And it, it has been missionary territory for a very long time. And it's a very interesting story. The, the West and Eastern cultures, like translating what is the heart of the Western, you know, culture into something that East and Eastern culture can accept is like, that was a challenge, is the challenge in China. And it's a fascinating history of how different characters in the church have dealt with it. You definitely get the sense that like, it's, it's an institution run by men who have a divine message, but it's run by men and they make mistakes. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's fair. Uh, the book I would suggest, the longest book I've ever read was uh, Clarissa, which I think is the longest book in the English language. This is not a humble brag. I read it for a course in college and most of it I listen to as an audiobook because it's uh, an epistolary. So the entire book is written in letters. And so to cover the same plot event, you have about 12 letters all saying, my dearest Clar Clarissa, on this day and furthermore and so forth, <laughs> that I took the, the, the pleasure of your company in these chambers and that we could so discuss uh, our carriage and comportment. And it's like, oh, good Lord, please let it end. But the, the plot itself is tense. Uh, so it's this young woman who is uh, carried off by her suitor uh, who is then becomes a an assaulter uh, who desires her far more than she does him but she fancies him a little bit more than she ought to 
uh, and her entire family wants her to marry him while she's being held captive by him. So it's really her story of holding out and holding on to her faith while every force around her, um, the masculine, the, the feminine of the family, are all trying to get her to conform to something that she cannot be, she refuses to be. And I mean, it, it's Shakespearean in many ways, as far as a sort of tragicomic uh, result. But uh, do I recommend reading it? Eh, I don't know. It's definitely worth listening to. And if you can find an abridged copy, that's probably where I'd go. Unless you just like saying, I've read the longest book in the English language. It's kind of like saying, I read Ulysses uh, cover to cover. And people are like, oh, oh, wow, good for you. What a jerk. Let's work last, though, in my defense. Yeah. Uh, but the book I'd, I'd really recommend is Gary Paulson's Hatchet. And so Sarah Schutte over at National Review wrote about that recently, and I wrote a response to her. And it's a book that is in many libraries and elementary schools, middle schools, that I think is probably the manliest, the most masculine novel in many of those libraries where the writing is spare. It's coming from a kind of a modernist, naturalist viewpoint where all of nature is arrayed against this young boy who crash lands in a forest after the pilot of the bushcraft um, <clears throat> has a heart attack in the air. And so he's a kid whose parents are divorced after his mom cheated on his dad and there's a separation. And so he is he is really without direction in every way that you can think of it. And uh, Sarah's piece really communicates this. Uh, she didn't appreciate the sort of godlessness of it. And I agree, there is no obvious God in the story uh, for this young boy who's searching. But I do think that if you consider sort of the, the clockmaker form, the, the deus view of nature, there is enough there in this sort of uh, perfect creation for the young boy to not only succeed and become a master over his surroundings, but then to also uh, create the means by which he's uh, saved by people searching for him. So there is a form of salvation there, but it, it is deeply buried and I, I think I was charitable to Paulson in my reading of it, <laughs> but whatever the case, I think it's a book that absolutely has to be in elementary and middle schools. That for a young boy, there's more I remember out of that book than in any other that I read during that period because of his descriptions of nature, the loneliness uh, for uh, young boys and just going through, uh, these teenage pre-pubescent pubescent years, it's tough. Uh, and it, I know I had my existential crisis at about that age where I truly feared God. I had my Martin Luther moment out on the road. Uh, and so it's, it's a book one should read and should buy for uh, young boys and girls uh, in your life. I highly recommend it. Uh, anything else for the good people before we get out of here, Aubrey? I think I, I just wanted to add to that. I think there's a general lack. This is a longer conversation. We should probably have it another time. But I think there's a general lack of like 
really good literature that talks about those themes for boys and girls in middle school and high school. And, and there, I mean, they're, they're, the books do exist. Children don't have access to them. And I think that's a big problem in society. Um, yeah. And the ones that the uh, teachers claim do, it's all about sex. And I'm sorry, but that's not really what is part of development. Yes. But the amount of woke sort of coming of age sex stories. No, I'm sorry. That's not what's foremost on a young kid's mind. It's it's much deeper than that. And there are more profound questions than where do I put this thing on me? <laughs> like it's like the Jordan Peterson version of <laughs> a novel. Something that like instills those values, but right. Even if you strip down his what his seven or 12, 12 yeah, 12 steps or what have you, that would be huge. Uh, and if that doesn't exist, it ought to, because I think it really drives at life's real questions much yeah. more than anything that the American Library Association is pushing these days. <sighs> Very good. Well, it's the weekend. We wish you all the best. For Aubrey, I'm Luther. Thank you for listening to the Spectator PM podcast.